Brought to you by GSK. You're familiar with flu season, but shingles is different. Every season is shingles season because the virus can reactivate at any time. Don't wait to vaccinate. Learn more at shinglesseason.com. Hello and welcome to the October 17th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to give you a quick summary of the new material that is available on annals.org. Let's get right to the new articles. The first article I'll highlight is a study of more than 850,000 children born in Australia that found that parental infertility itself may play a role in the increased risk of birth defects in children conceived through fertility treatments. More than 2 million children are conceived annually using assisted reproductive technologies. Previous studies suggest that children conceived with assisted reproductive technologies are at increased risk of congenital anomalies. However, the role of underlying infertility on this risk remains unclear, and assisted reproductive technologies and laboratory practices have changed drastically over time, particularly a rise in intracytoplasmic sperm injection and cryopreservation. Previous research suggests that children born with assisted reproductive technologies have an increased risk for congenital abnormalities, particularly cardiac and genitourinary anomalies. However, it is unclear how much of this risk can be attributed to parental infertility problems compared to the actual assisted reproductive treatment. Researchers from University of South Wales conducted a propensity score-weighted population-based cohort study of 851,984 infants born between 2009 and 2017 in New South Wales. The authors found that there were approximately 40 additional cases of any major congenital abnormality per 10,000 singleton assisted reproductive technology births compared to singletons conceived naturally to parents without prior infertility problems. The risk became insignificant when assisted reproductive therapy-conceived children were compared to children conceived naturally to parents with a history of infertility. The authors say that these findings suggest that parental infertility may partly explain the increase in risk seen in assisted reproductive technology-conceived children. The authors also found that intracytoplasmic sperm injection was a risk factor for genitourinary anomalies, even in couples without male infertility. They note that these findings strongly suggest that intracytoplasmic sperm injection represents an independent risk factor for congenital abnormalities and should be reserved for patients with male infertility. Xylazine, an animal sedative that is approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration only for veterinary use, has made its way into the illicitly manufactured fentanyl supply. It is easily available, cheap, and is said to enhance the opioid high. Not a lot is known about how to treat patients with xylazine poisoning, but unfortunately, clinicians in some cities, including Philadelphia, where a large proportion of the illicit drug supply contains xylazine, are gathering experience in caring for patients affected by this contaminant, which is also known by the street name Trank. A review by such experienced clinicians is available on annals.org. The authors provide several critical recommendations for healthcare institutions and agencies to help combat the threat of xylazine and improve awareness among clinicians. They suggest educating providers in many settings about xylazine so that they can better recognize potential xylazine poisoning, know about appropriate supportive care, and that naloxone will not reverse its effects but should be given anyway since xylazine is typically combined with opioids and how to recognize and manage the serious wounds that can occur at sites of xylazine injection. They call for research to further investigate xylazine fentanyl pharmacology, toxicology, adverse effects, withdrawal syndrome, and treatment strategies. 
expanding screening to include xylazine on standard urine drug testing, and increased surveillance of the drug supply and xylazine test strip distribution, expanding access to low-barrier treatment settings with co-located substance use disorder and wound care treatment, and expanding access to inpatient and residential settings where both wound care and substance use disorder treatment are offered. An accompanying editorial emphasizes the importance of comprehensive surveillance of xylazine use and poisonings. The authors note most data on xylazine use comes from people who have died and some studies monitoring hospitalization. Very little is known about the more common outcome, use that does not lead to hospitalization or death. The authors suggest several courses of action that can be taken to increase understanding of xylazine use. Since the release of ChatGPT and other generative artificial intelligence tools last fall, artificial intelligence is being talked about in every field education, business, entertainment, art, science, and healthcare. Healthcare, some say, is among the disciplines that could be most affected by artificial intelligence. But AI simultaneously holds promise and concern. The next article explores what happens when AI predictive models based on electronic health record data are updated as new data become available. Researchers from Mount Sinai and University of Michigan simulated three common scenarios of model implementation and associated changes in model performance using data from 130,000 critical care admissions. The scenarios each consider deployment of models to predict the risk for death or acute kidney injury in the first five days after admission to the ICU. Scenario one considers the result of implementing and retraining a mortality prediction model. Scenario two considers the implementation of an acute kidney injury model followed by the creation of a new mortality prediction model. And scenario three considers the simultaneous implementation of both an acute kidney injury and mortality prediction model. The authors found that the model in scenario one lost 9 to 39% specificity after retraining once. The mortality model in scenario two lost 8 to 15% specificity when created after acute kidney injury model had been in use. In scenario three, models for acute kidney injury and mortality prediction implemented simultaneously, each led to reduced effective accuracy of the other by 1 to 28%. The authors report that in each scenario, performance for models trained on data from populations that benefit from interventions afforded by model prediction is inferior to performance of the original model. Based on their findings, rather than adopting a universal strategy, the authors believe that model developers should simulate each model's updating strategy at each site where a model is to be implemented. They also recommend measures to track how and when predictions influence clinical decision-making because most suggested mitigation strategies rely on this information being available. And electronic health record data may be rendered unsuitable for training models otherwise. An accompanying editorial provides important context to these findings. It notes that the drift observed in the models included in the study appear in AI in other contexts. The editorialists highlight that these models collapse if recursively trained on their own output, and this noise introduced to other clinical models may further degrade clinical predictions in the future. The editorial authors also suggest that fixing model drift starting with inspection rather than immediate correction may help. They suggest that, as with other interventions, clinical trials should be designed to evaluate the effect of AI models on relevant clinical outcomes. 
In a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines feature, two experts review the available evidence about cognitive impairment to determine effective screening and interventions to improve patient outcomes and the circumstances under which they would recommend screening an actual patient for cognitive impairment. Screening tests are available for cognitive impairment, but a positive result does not diagnose the condition. Instead, it should lead to additional testing for confirmation. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force concluded in 2020 that evidence was insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening for cognitive impairment in older adults. This was an I statement. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force did clarify that although there is insufficient evidence, there may be important reasons to identify cognitive impairment. The Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds discussants were Michael Barry, chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and Deborah Blacker, a member of the Department of Psychiatry in the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital and professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, debate the case of Ms. B, a 75-year-old woman who, along with her primary care physician, were wondering whether she should be screened for memory loss given multiple risk factors and her desire to be proactive about her care. Go to annals.org to watch the video of the Grand Rounds, read the article, and obtain CME and MOC credit. Beyond initial COVID-19 pandemic emergency expansions of telemedicine use, it is unclear how well primary care telemedicine addresses patients' needs. The next article reports a study that compared management and follow-up visits following primary care visits that happened via video or telephone to those that were in person. Using administrative and electronic health record data from a large integrated delivery system between April 2021 and December 2021, the researchers studied over 1.5 million adult patients. Treatment outcomes included whether medications, labs, or imaging studies were ordered. Follow-up visits included in-person visits to the primary care office, emergency department, or hospitalization within seven days. Of 2,357,598 primary care visits, 50.8% used telemedicine. After adjustment, medications were prescribed in 46.8% of office visits, 38.4% of video visits, and 34.6% of telephone visits. After the visit, 1.3% of in-person visits, 6.2% of video visits, and 7.6% of telephone visits had a seven-day return in-person primary care visit. 1.6% of in-person visits, 1.8% of video visits, and 2.1% of telephone visits were followed by an emergency room visit. Differences in follow-up office visits were largest after index office versus telephone visits for acute pain conditions and smallest for mental health conditions. The researchers conclude that in-person return visits were somewhat higher after telemedicine compared with in-person primary care visits, but varied by specific clinical condition. Go to annals.org to read the full article and find out about the other comparisons that were investigated in the study. The speed of drug regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Europe is a constant source of discussion. The authors of the next article sought to assess regulatory review duration of first and supplementary indications for drugs approved between 2011 and 2020 in the U.S. and Europe and the submission delays between U.S. and Europe. Of note, two agencies, one EU agency and a Swiss agency, approved drugs in Europe. Analyses restricted to the 241 drugs approved in all three jurisdictions revealed median review time was 245 days in the U.S., 426 days in the EU, and 478 days in Switzerland. 
Applications were submitted for new drugs first in the U.S., followed a median of nine days later in the EU and 116 days later in Switzerland. Efficient review of drugs accelerates patient access. Achieving this goal has been a priority, particularly in the U.S., because evidence suggests a link between reduced review times and risk for patients. Fastest reviews should focus on drugs with an expected superior outcome compared to standard care. Stronger cooperation between the agencies could improve the process. Substance use disorders often go unrecognized. Screening for opioid use disorder may be an effective approach to increase identification, much like it is for depression, anxiety, and alcohol use disorder. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends screening for substance use in primary care settings if effective treatments are available. The objective of a new brief research report was to compare the percentage of primary care patients who are newly diagnosed with opioid use disorder before and after implementing universal screening for opioid use disorder. The researchers recruited 20 diverse primary care clinics to participate in a pre-post screening study embedded in a cluster randomized trial of opioid use disorder treatment. Screening was conducted using opioid use disorder questions from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Modified Alcohol Smoking and Substance Involvement Screening Test, the NM-ASSIST, and or the two-item short opioid screen. The latter was developed for the study because of difficulties administering and scoring the NM-ASSIST. Each participating clinic calculated the number and percentage of existing patients with new opioid use disorder diagnoses in the six months prior to and after screening initiation. Among 167,710 existing unique patients with visits during the six-month post-screening period, 1,656, or 0.99%, had an opioid use disorder diagnosis, including 177, or 0.11%, with a new opioid use disorder diagnosis. The median pre-post increase in the number of patients with a new opioid use disorder diagnosis was 1.5 patients per clinic, with a range from minus 4 to 17. Disappointingly, there was no clinically meaningful increase in diagnosis of opioid use disorder with universal screening in these primary care clinics. Stigma may be a factor in the ineffectiveness of universal screening. Patients may be uncomfortable disclosing opioid use, fearing they will face discrimination. To address opioid use disorder, clinics who offer opioid use disorder treatment should consider outreach activities and publicize their commitment to accepting new patients seeking care for this condition. In the U.S., web searches for abortion near me are five times more common than for colonoscopy near me. Patient-oriented web pages may play an important role for patients to locate abortion providers, learn about the procedure, and schedule care. Hospitals and health systems would be one potential source of this information, particularly information about whether the institution provides abortion services. The final new article I'll mention reports a study that examined the websites of U.S. hospitals, including those with specialized abortion training programs, to determine how often these websites offered information about abortion and its provision at their facilities compared to colonoscopy, another common ambulatory procedure performed in both outpatient and inpatient settings. The study sample included non-federal acute care hospitals in the 2019 American Hospital Association database with at least one labor and delivery bed and excluded hospitals in the 24 U.S. states with the most restrictive abortion policies, but included all hospitals with Ryan residency training programs in abortion and family planning, and a random sample of 157 of the 1,455 remaining hospitals. 
In August and September 2022, three authors conducted Google searches for abortion and colonoscopy, restricting search results to the website of each hospital or its health system. Researchers identified patient-facing web pages discussing each procedure and codified the information available to patients. Among 222 sampled hospitals, 79.4% of patient-facing websites did not mention abortion, compared to only 11.1% for colonoscopy. Websites describe offering abortion care only 6.3% of the time, compared to 85.6% for colonoscopy. Hospitals with the Ryan Residency Training Program in Abortion and Family Planning were more likely to offer information on abortion, but even those hospitals were more likely to mention colonoscopy than to mention abortion on their websites. For websites offering information about abortion, 89.8% omitted patient instructions for pre- or post-procedural care compared to 42.2% of websites offering information about colonoscopy. These results are consistent with rare disclosure of abortion training to prospective trainees on OBGYN residency websites in 2008. The increasing restriction of access to abortion services increases the importance of patient-facing website information as patients seek care. The authors conclude that their findings suggest that hospitals and their health systems may not be informing patients about abortion in a manner consistent with other outpatient procedures, nor consistent with medical society statements that abortion is routine, essential health care. Additional new material includes two on being a doctor essays and the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and Annals on Call. The Consult Guys address the question, how many blood cultures are enough? And Annals on Call features a discussion about the relationship of acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease progression. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope I've piqued your interest in going to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've mentioned here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. You're familiar with flu season, but shingles is different. Every season is shingles season because the virus can reactivate at any time. Don't wait to vaccinate. Learn more at shingleseason.com.